Hi there, everyone. It's Dave Levine here. Thanks for joining me for episode number 49 of the Sports Stories podcast. This is the second to last episode in series five. Now, before we get into introducing today's guest, I just want to take us back a week or so to the guests we've had previous in series five. We've had chief executives, coach developers, administrators, performers. We've had lots of people doing all sorts of different roles and have had different experiences across the board working in and through sport. Last week's guest was Dan Newton. Dan is the chief executive of Parkour and has also had roles working with rounders, botcher and many other sports across the sporting landscape. What did also come through really strongly in Dan's role and in his career was his role in sport development and his passion for the development of people through the vehicle of sport. Now today's guest I'd like to introduce is Tony Fretwell. Tony also has a real passion and interest in developing sport but also in developing people through sport. Tony's role is currently the Women's FA Canopy Manager so his role is to develop the system for women's football through a canopy sport. Now, Tony has had a fantastic role here, but also draws on a massive experience of working both in education and in other governing bodies, particularly the Rugby Football League. Now, Tony will bring his openness, his passion, his enthusiasm and his great storytelling. He's a real person that wears his heart on his sleeve and tells it as it is. And I know Tony's faced some real great challenges in his career, as well as some real great highs, and I'm sure he'll share many of those. Now, as always, please let us know how you get on. I'd love to hear your feedback, your thoughts, what really resonated with you from today's show and others. So please make sure to keep in contact through the, uh, the website, which is www.sportstories247. And as always, I will leave and pose a few questions at the end, as I really want to help make this episode and others real use to you. So they're not just entertainment, they're also education, inspiration, and access to uh, transformation. So listen to the questions, take away some of your insights and take some action. But first and foremost, please keep in contact and let me know how you get on. So all it really leaves me to say is find a place where you can listen to your podcast the best you can, get some quiet space, go out for a walk, go for a bike ride, do what you need to do, but make sure you maximize this great opportunity to listen to somebody's story who I'm sure will leave many, many gems for you to take away and give you something to really think about. So all it really leaves me to do is just to give a very, very warm welcome to my very special guest today, the Football Association's Women's Academy Manager, Mr. Tony Fretwell. Tony, it's great to see you. Thanks for joining me on the Sports Stories podcast. Um, it's been a little while uh, over the pandemic since we last spoke. Uh, the world's changed a little bit, but it's great to reconnect. So thanks for giving up some time in your busy, busy diary. Let's kick off. Introduce yourself. Tell tell the listeners a little bit about who you are and what you've done, because I know you quite well, but you've got a great story from different sports. Um, over to you. Tell us a little bit about your background and story. Okay, Dave. Um, first of all, thank you for inviting me along. And uh, it's always great to do stuff like this. Podcasts have definitely become part of everybody's lives <laughs> yeah. during this period, because uh, there's never been so many cyclists, joggers and walkers, <laughs> which is a good thing. So, um, yeah, uh, I, I love listening to podcasts and if anybody enjoys listening to uh, my rambles, um, I, I'm very happy to do so. So my name is Tony Fretwell. I am the Women's Super League uh, Academy Manager at the Football Association. Um, but my background is in rugby league, um, where I, I, I played as a child. Um, I, I got into rugby league through a PE teacher, uh, a man who's sadly no longer with us anymore, called uh, Mr. Reed. 
uh, at Templemore High School in Leeds. And, and my early ambitions were to be a backing dancer for Michael Jackson. Uh, and if anybody's ever seen me having a dance, they, they would realise that that wasn't ever going to happen. Um, and, and sport wasn't enormously part of, of the things that I enjoyed as a kid. Okay. Um, and in PE, I, this was the era of standing in the line, the best two kids pick, um, and, and there was lots of football. And, and I kind of, I had a bit of an interest in football, but not a huge interest. It was mainly because everybody else was interested in it. Um, and I wasn't interested in it because I wasn't very good. Right. And um, Mr. Reed was my PE teacher and the head of year. And we did rugby at school. I didn't know the difference between league and union. We just did right. rugby. Okay, yeah. uh, and that was the first time ever that somebody had said to me about a sporting activity, you're quite good at this. Wow. And he said, uh, come to after school club. He says, you'll really enjoy it. Um, and I never looked back. And, and, and I think that has driven a lot of my philosophies now about talent pathways have to have multiple opportunity points. Because... I might be the greatest golfer that ever lived, but I've never played golf. And I'm not going to start now because it's too late and I'll miss out and uh, regret the life choices <laughs> I made. But, um, you know, if, if Tiger Woods and Seve Ballesteros never swung a club, they'd have never known. No. So you have to have opportunity and, and that, that, that kind of resonates with me. So um, I, I did that. I went to a local community club um, and that just became part of life. Dad ended up being the chairman. My mum was the secretary. Um, Sunday mornings, Sunday mornings smelt of hot dogs because I would wake up um, and get my kit ready to go to the game and my mum would be boiling onions hot <laughs> and doing hot dogs because she would do the aftermatch food. Um, and, and the local community club, which is Kippert's Welfare, um, just outside Castleford, um, that just became an extension of, of, of life. Because I was playing, I, I wanted to watch, so I then went, went watching Castleford. Um, my dad supports Blackpool, which is why I support Blackpool. Um, and occasionally I'd go there, but obviously it was a bit further away, so we didn't quite get to go as often. But yeah, rugby became a fascination, and it was all because somebody had said, you're all right at this. Um, and, and I think that that spark was lit um, very early in that uh, and very quickly I um, found myself with some interest from professional clubs and this was this was this was interesting because um, a few different scouts had spoken to my dad um, and I was given an opportunity to go to a couple of different clubs and I ended up joining the academy at Bradford right. and this was this was just at the end of the Bradford Northern era so that yeah. the kind of the Bulls brand hadn't exploded at that point. Um, it did whilst I was there, and, and that was tremendous to be involved in. Um, but the thing that I reflect on now was I had been playing club rugby for less than 18 months when a professional club came in. Wow. And I was going to a professional club, training with players who'd been playing for 10 years plus. I didn't know how to pass properly. I didn't know how to tackle properly. I didn't even know all the rules. When did you, know, you was... when, when did you realise that? How did you realise that? Uh, I, I, I realised that um, 
as I was going along and, and noticing things, I remember being told you were going to play in the second row. And I was like, I thought that in terms of defensively, would I be stood behind the defensive line in a second row so I wouldn't be involved? So I was like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I want to be involved. <laughs> I want to be involved. So I said, I want to be one yeah, of the yeah. forwards. Yeah. Now, obviously, a second row is a forward. forward. And I remember saying that and people looking at me like I was an alien. And it was because I didn't know the positions. I didn't know anything like that. Um, now, I think that drives my passion and enthusiasm for having systems that accommodate late developers, those late to the sport, because that, that was me. Um, I, I, I started at a disadvantage. Um, and I don't use that as an excuse. You know, I, I kind of... Uh, I broke my arm while I was at the academy and then in my first game back, I broke it again. And we'd just been talking about a, a new contract and things, things just didn't work out in that regard. Um, but one thing I do know is I was expected to go in and train with all these other players who knew much more than me. And I wanted to know lots more. And I, and I actually think that as a player, I was in my mid twenties when I played my best, the best I ever played was in my mid twenties. Um, nowhere near when I was in the academy, I just didn't know enough. Um, and I got really interested in coaching. That started off by there's a guy called Andy Harland. He, he, he still he still does development work in Bradford now, and uh, he was in the development office for the club. And he would go around the schools, and I asked if I could go with him. So we used to go and do some coaching in schools and hand out tickets and stuff like that. Um, and, and when I was 16, I did a coaching badge. And I think this kind of that thirst for wanting to know more about the game. Yeah, so so, was it, so what, was the, what was your interest in coaching? Was it just about knowing more about the game? Or was it, so were you interested in coaching for you or were you interested in coaching to help others? Um, a bit of both. I think um, I loved learning about the sport. Right. I, I, I quickly developed an obsession. So um, every magazine, every newspaper, every TV show. Uh, and, and actually at home in my parents' loft, I've got loads of uh, newspapers and like the, the League Express and Open Rugby magazine. And I've got loads of VHS games because if it was on the telly, I recorded it and kept it. Oh. So I've just got this massive library of stuff. Um, and, and I was fascinated. I remember discovering when you could order magazines from Australia to be sent over and, 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 and just became this, I suppose now the phrase would be student of the game, but I just loved it. I wanted to know more. Um, and, and I loved passing that on. Right. Even, even as a teenager myself, I loved working with um, youngsters. So when I was doing my A-levels, I used to coach the year seven and the eight, year eight school teams. Um, and, and then, when I went to university, so that had happened, uh, the, the contract offer at Bradford didn't work out as we planned. Yeah. And I decided I wanted to go to university and I was at, at Teesside in Middlesbrough. And um, I was doing sports science and I, I wanted probably to work in development of, of some kind, of, be a development officer, something like that. Um, but there's no rugby league in, in, in Teesside. So I think that's where one of the first um, kind of uh, the way I work emerged. If there wasn't an opportunity, I'll make me on. So um, using simple Microsoft Paint and a printer in the student house, 
um, and my little Ford Fiesta. I bought some balls, I bought some cones, I devised a logo, and I set up Cleveland Schools Rugby League Association. And we offered free coaching, um, eight-week blocks, and literally I'd finish me lectures, jump in my Fiesta, go and coach in a school in Middlesbrough um, on an afternoon, kind of half three to half four, um, created a league where, funnily enough, I was the referee as well. You were everything. And we, had a rep, <laughs> and we had a rep team that played on a Saturday in the English Schools Rugby League. So we played in Division 2, so we were playing like Keith Lee and Carlisle and yeah, yeah. things like that. Um, and, 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 and that's what I did. And, and that, if I couldn't get me on it, if I couldn't get experience somewhere else, I'll make me on Tony, where did that come from, that idea, you know, in, in you that actually, if, if, if there wasn't the opportunity, I'll make it, you know, where, where's that perseverance and that determination and that desire to just to make things happen come from at such a young age? <laughs> I don't think it was a decision, Dave. I just think um, it was, it was just, it was a natural conclusion right. to the problem I faced. I want to do this and... There's nowhere for me to do it, so I'll do it on my own. I'll, I'll make a place to do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and 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 that that led to um, I sent my CV to every rugby league club because I wanted to work in in development. That's what I wanted to do. Um, and out of the blue, I got a letter from Halifax Rugby League Club saying we'd like to speak to you for the job that you've applied for. I didn't know I'd applied for a job. <laughs> yeah. um, but they had a, a, a job that was advertised. I hadn't seen the advert. Um, and by sending in my CV, I'd accidentally applied for it. And, and I think, bearing in mind, um, it wasn't a wealthy club, but it was a club really, really struggling. And, you know, the, the well-documented financial issues came later on. Yeah. Um, but I fulfilled two criteria, three criteria possibly. I was qualified to do the job in terms of the badges that I needed. I was enthusiastic and would work ridiculous hours that the job required. And I was very cheap. Um, so on a, an initial salary of just 15,000 pounds a year, I joined Halifax initially as the um, development officer. And I was there three and a half years. And in that three and a half years, um, I did work 70, 80 hours a week. I was the uh, service area coordinator, so the local development officer. I was the scholarship lead and scholarship coach. I was head coach for the junior academy. I played for the under-21s. I wrote the program. I did the mascot, sometimes for the first team, and I was the PA announcer. And then I ended up um, in first team support staff when Steve Lenane was the head coach. Um, so I was working with the first team at training sessions and on game days. Um, and and here, here's, here's the next kind of bit of advice. Don't worry about being cheap at the start. Yeah. That will change in time. Go where you can get the opportunity. Yeah. And I am forever grateful to that club, Halifax Rugby League Club, Halifax Panthers as they're now branded, um, because... It's a lovely family environment. They haven't got an awful lot of money. They haven't got tens of thousands of supporters. Um, but if you were willing to throw yourself in, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I moved to just next to the ground because it would mean I had more of a life. 
because I'd be able to get home from the tea quicker. Quicker, yeah. So, but, you know, that, that, but, that was my life. You talked there about, you know, don't worry about being cheap or taking the opportunity. What, you know, I, I love the idea or the concept around you make your own luck, you know, and you, you, you clearly worked really hard to get that job, didn't you? You did, you put things in place, didn't you? Or why did they take you and not anybody else? So how did you make your own luck there to get your first step on the ladder? There were times at that period whereby, um, well, as there's been many times, so over my career, there has been many times where I've sat there and I've gone, how have I got this? Um, so how did I get that role at Halifax? How did I end up moving to Widnes? How did I get to work with England Academy Rugby League teams and work with the performance unit England Rugby League? Um, and I, I, I think I only recognise why when I've looked back, I don't, I, I, there were times when I felt desperately out of my depth yep. at the time. Yep. And, and kind of wondering how, how the hell am I doing this? And I hope people don't think I know more than I do. Yeah. Um, but I notice this a lot more now in that I, I do talent development lectures at different colleges and universities. And you sit in front of sports science students who have an aspiration for working in sport and you ask them what they're doing and they say I'm doing a sports science degree and then you'll say and what sport do you play mm, well play a bit of football or play a bit of basketball or, what what do you mean by a bit oh well I, I kind of go and do some five side once a week okay do you volunteer at any clubs do you do any of this do you do any of that and, and your qualification might mean that you have the ability to open the door, but it won't get you through the door. What gets you through the door is all the other stuff that you're willing to do. Mm. And and sport is a pastime that millions love, so therefore it becomes really competitive. Mm. You know, um, there are other professions whereby you don't need to do that. If you've got the qualification, you're in. Through, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, we don't have that, so you have to make yourself stand out from the crowd through your own efforts. Yeah. And the biggest thing that will stand out is your work ethic. Right. Now, what I realized was I might not have been the best at what I did, but nobody else I don't think was working harder at it than I was. So therefore I got the opportunities. And then later in life, when I've heard of, I, I hold the belief that the, the greatest rugby league player of the Super League era is Kevin Sinfield. And Kevin's done loads of interviews. Yeah, he's been a podcast guest of mine on here, actually. Oh, is he really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and he's done loads of interviews. And, it, and he's very clear about he wasn't the most skillful. Yeah. He wasn't the fastest. He wasn't the most talented. But he was going to be the hardest working. Okay. And I, and I just think if, you were, if you're willing to work really, really hard at something, you'll get better at it. And the better you get, the more chance you've got of being lucky. Mm. You're making your own look. There, right? Doesn't matter how good you are, you still need to be lucky as well. Yeah. What about that idea though about when you, you were sat in these positions and thinking that, you know, how did I get this job? Apart from the work ethic, am I right for this place? That sort of you know, some people use the the kind of the idea of imposter syndrome. I shouldn't be here, or this is yeah. above me. How have you managed yourself through that when you've felt that, other than just hard work? I think that I think that imposter syndrome has always been an issue and and yeah. Um, and it's still an issue now yeah. um, because I have sat in meetings and around the table um, 
I'd, I'd be sat at Red Hall and I'd be having a, a meeting and there are two or three ma- uh, men of steel, multiple Super League and Challenge Cup winners, multiple caps, and I'm sat having a, a discussion with them and they're listening to me and they're you know, sharing what my views are and taking me seriously and treating me credibly. And, and, and then I've left the room and kind of gone, how the hell does that happen? <laughs> then I joined the FA, bearing in mind my feet are 50 pence shaped and I've, I, I, I've <laughs> played a little bit of recreation football. I play for a Vets team now. And then I'm dreadful at football. Yeah. Um, and I watch a League One team who are slightly less dreadful, exactly. but not, <laughs> not, not world class. Um, but be confident in what you do know. Put forward what you do know, but don't blag, don't lie, be honest, admit what you don't know, um, and, and, and try and develop really good people skills, because ultimately, it doesn't matter whether you've got 100 caps for England, or whether you have 50 B-shaped feet, you've still got to be a good person, and um, if you respect all the things that you've learned along the way, and, and, and you're you try to be as humble as you can to kind of go, I don't understand this. I'll tell you what I think about this because I think I do understand this and work really, really hard at understanding it. But admit what you don't know. No. Then I, I think it, then it becomes, you manage the imposter syndrome by going, well, look, we're all just people here and, right. and we're all flawed in certain ways. Yeah. And um, I, I try and take the view that you might be a 100 cap international at a particular sport but in my mind, I'm a hundred cap international at thinking about what I do. Yeah. You know, so I think I, I I've gained player development and talent development caps. Caps experience. Yeah, yeah. It's just yeah. A, it's just different, yeah. isn't it? It's just different. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And 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 one of the things that I've said to to people who are aspiring to progress in this type of work as well, um, make sure you do your reading. Find things out because if you have done your reading and you've done your homework and you listen to viewpoints, listen to people that you don't agree with because you'll try and develop an understanding of why did they think that? Um, And if you know your stuff and you've done your reading, then you will say something in a meeting and people will go, really? I didn't know that. Don't pretend to know. Make sure you know. Don't know if you learnt this along the way then, this kind of approach, or do you think it was kind of embedded or given to you at an early age and you've just evolved it and developed it? Or you know, have you or have you just looked back and said, God, this is what I've done and this is how I've done it? No, I, I think you have to learn it along the way. I, I yeah. um when I was at Halifax there were a few times where I was pulled into the office by the chief exec at the time, who was Nigel Wood. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, anybody who knows anything about rugby league knows Nigel's name. Um, and Nigel was the chief exec. Quite a few times I got pulled into the office to kind of wind my neck in because I probably commented on something that I hadn't done my homework on. Um, when I went to witness, and I went to witness because I could combine that with doing a, a PGCE at John Moore's. That was why I chose to go there and that right. was my next step. Um, and, and I'd become acquainted with Neil Kelly, who was the head coach. Neil brought me in the office a few times and 
you know, kicked me backside, uh, brought me back down to earth. Um, but the thing was, I, I, I tried to listen and I tried to learn, and I didn't kind of walk out going, they're idiots and they don't know what they're on about and why, why has he ever got me? I kind of sat there and reflected, what, you know, what have I done wrong there? So I, you will get things wrong, but that's really important. Because mm. I, I look at situations we deal with now and I, I can relate to a time where I've made the same mistake that I'm seeing somebody else make. Yeah. And that, that's why you've got to be really comfortable with mistakes. You've, you've got to let them happen and then reflect on it. If you try and stop every mistake, you're killing learning left, right and centre. And I love that idea of this mistakes thing, isn't it? Because the, the world we're in at the minute, you know, I don't, I don't know about you, but a lot of people I'm hearing is, you know, we're, we're destined to try and be, whether it's perfect or correct or high performance, but actually there's a tension in there because actually in order to get there, you need to get things wrong. But actually society somehow, somehow tries to drill that out of us. I, I don't know. But I'm just wondering, you know, Again, is that something that you've developed through? Is this part of your, your your teacher training stuff or is that being instilled in you all the way through your playing career? This idea of, you know, because you're always pushing boundaries here, aren't you? You know, if I can't do it, I'll have a go. You know, I'm, and I might get it wrong, but I'll get it wrong to get it right. Yeah, I, I, I have constantly said in, in the development of the WSL Academy system um, that we will try something with the greatest of intentions, it won't work out and we'll change it. Um, I, I work very closely with David Faulkner. Uh, for those who don't know David, David is um, uh, head of uh, performance services for the women's uh, pathway. He is an Olympic gold medal uh, winning hockey player. Hockey player yeah. um, and you know that that's his background spot. And he uses the phrase fail fast. Yeah. So kind of mm -hmm. I, I try something, recognize when it's not going right and change it. Um, and, and and I loved that when I first spoke to him about the role because what I don't want is don't make mistakes because yeah. that just creates this knife edge culture. Um, if you're going to make mistakes, you've got to you've got to make them with the best of intentions, but don't keep making it because then you're not learning. <laughs> um, and and I also think from from teaching, what I got there was that, and and I think. In retrospect, this is the thing I love most about this type of work. I love the fact that there's no single answer. Right. It's, okay. a, it's almost like talent development is, is, is like Indiana Jones trying to find the Holy Grail. And, <laughs> yeah, and fools will point to what they think is the Holy Grail. It doesn't exist. It's mythical. There is no single answer as to how you produce um, world-class athletes. What there are are multiple hundreds of thousands of answers, but they don't all work with everybody. Really? The answer that will work with that player is completely different to how that work with that player. And I think um, the beauty of that is you can't ever be fully wrong. Yep. You can go, well, that works there, and I'll use that there, mm. but that works there. Yeah. And, and I think yeah, that that drives my inquisitive nature. I love yeah. the fact that, well, what makes the difference? And sometimes you can't answer that. So I think what, what we have to do is we have to develop a system that provides absolutely loads of flexibility, whereby you can you can change things and adapt things um, that suits the players uh, that you've got and that you're working with. But also you need to give the practitioners a big toolkit 
Right. So, so you know, just just like kind of a, a surgeon has all his implements in, in the theatre, and he or she won't use all of them, but they're there if they're needed. Um, I, I, I take that view to yeah. talent development, you know, um, and when a question is asked of me by an academy manager, I think we should do this or this player. There's two questions really. Um, one, why? So always kind of challenge yourself. Yeah. What, why do you think they need yeah. that? What's the rationale, the thinking behind yeah. that? Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, and then once there's a rationale, how are you going to do it? Not, not, you can't do that. It's yeah. how are you going to do it? Yeah. So the, the answer is always, okay, well, let's see how we can make that work rather than, well, the rules say, no, you can't do that. Yeah. It's now, your that, can that, do, that, it's make it work again, attitude and, coming out. <laughs> and and, and that, that, that creates a lot of headaches because it's a governing yeah. body. And governing <laughs> bodies need rules. And I'm not a huge fan of rules. I think rules need to be quite open to allow flexibility and scope. Um, and of course, we, we, all, we all need some rules, but your rules yeah. need to be kept as thin as possible. Much more important than rules, your principles. You know, what is it that we're doing here? And, and, and everything we try to do is based on a player-centered view. Right. And if it's not player-centered, then we've really got to question it. And when you say player-centered, what, what, what do you mean by that in, in the context of the work you're doing at the moment? Will what we do make yeah. the player better yeah. or make the environment in which the player sits better? Right. If it doesn't do either of those, I'm not sure we should be doing it. Yeah. We've got to then drill down a lot deeper as to why we're doing it. Yeah. Now, there, there, sometimes there are reasons why in terms of it's it's a, a financial reason, but actually if that secures the environment, then the player is benefiting from it because it's a much more secure environment. Yeah. So we've always got to follow that trail. Is that going, yeah, you know that philosophy, that is it going to make the boat go faster? faster yeah. If it isn't, Let's not bother. Yeah, or let's because ask a really hard question. We've all got a list there, of yeah. things to do. Yeah, yeah. Because there, there, there is always we have always um, got a, a, an economic problem with our resource and our time. Right. There are there is always a list of things to do that's too great versus the resource and the time that we've got to do it. So we've got to pick and choose. And in a dual career system, you've got two considerations: is this going to make this athlete a better performer? And is it going to help them aspire to their non-sport-specific aspirations for their life yeah. and to do a career? Um, if it's not doing either of those, Question. it's not a priority. Yeah. Tony, you, you made some lovely connections there for me, you know, back to um, your sporting career and when you started and came through in terms of that whole late developer stuff you referred to in the talent development. But also, you know, you talk there about actually really making a difference. Uh, if there wasn't an opportunity, well, I'd go and make a difference. I'd find a way. I, I love the parallels because of our journey makes us who we are, you know, and how you've brought that philosophy into the work you do now. I, I want this to just take that on a step. And, you know, you've alluded to the fact, you know, that you were working within rugby league and you actually, that was your kind of your real interest and your passion and your, your life, as it were. But then you've, you've transitioned away from rugby league to football. How did all that transition take place? And what did you learn from the one environment and take to the other? I think when I work with aspiring young professionals and, and, and they say they want to work in sport, I refer to this, this kind of dual career philosophy. Yeah. And dual career isn't just the athletes, it's also the practitioners that are in it. So I've always had a dual career and my dual career has been 
working in the sport and working in education. And sometimes I've jumped between the two. Um, so I was working solely in the sport and I was at Halifax. Financial trouble hit. There was a couple of options as to what I did next. Um, none were well paid, funnily enough. Um, and, and the one I chose was to go to Witness because if I went to Witness, um, I could combine that with a part-time PGCE yeah. um, at Liverpool John Moores. So again, that was ridiculously long hours. So I'd work in the community department in the morning. I would then, um, in an afternoon, go and do um, a couple of hours teaching practice because I did that part-time. Then I would come back and coach the academy. It's about eight o'clock. And then I'd go home, grab something to eat um, and do my lesson plans from PGCE. And in between all that, I was I was still playing part time. Wow, yeah. So, yeah, they, they were ridiculous hours for for a couple of years. Um, but then that gave me a choice, and I I, I had an opportunity to become a full time PE teacher. So right. I transitioned into a career of teaching, and um, I was a PE teacher for eleven years. Um, I worked at one secondary school for five years, and then. Um, I had an opportunity to move and, and be a director of sport at a school in Manchester, um, which kind of gave me much more leadership responsibility. Okay, yeah. Um, so I went and did that. Um, I worked to develop partnerships with Manchester United because it's right near Old Trafford, yeah. with Salford Red Devils, with Lancashire Cricket. So that gave me a bit more of a multi-sport view. Um, and I, I gen generally thought I, I, I'm a, an academic um professional yeah and this is what i'll do now till the end of my career um and then a gentleman called john roberts who was director of performance at the time at um the rugby football league led the england rugby league program he got in touch and he said we'd like to speak to you because um we want to develop our pathway work much more closely with education and trying to find somebody who has professional experience and educational experience right. narrows the field quite quite significantly. Um, and everybody I spoke to said, uh, if you go back working in professional sport after you've built up your education career, you're an absolute idiot. And I agreed with them. <laughs> Why did they though. say that, though? Why did they say that? Because there's a viewpoint that sport is precarious, which it is. Yeah. You know, you don't have the same job security. Um and education seen as not far off a job for life yes. and you know less precarious <laughs> yeah. but anybody who works in teaching will tell you it's it's a very difficult landscape you know not getting too political but it's not an easy profession to be in no yeah um but i i i was given that opportunity and something i um had developed a real interest in uh bizarrely was kind of philosophy around happiness and contentment now this came as a result of some mental health challenges i had um around 2010 yeah which led to some time off having treatment this that and the other um and i started reading stuff by a guy called alan watts um who you know i, I think, I think he, he died in the 70s and he, he did a lot of work in the 50s and um, a lot of it was based on what is happiness and what makes us happy. And um, it was very much around what would you do if there was no such thing as money? How would you fill your time? 
And whatever you decide that that's what you would do, that's what you should try to do for a career. Because if you earn less money doing something you're happy with, then you'll have a better life than if you earn more money doing something you don't like. Now, it wasn't that I didn't like teaching. What I knew working in, in the sport and in play development was something that I was going to absolutely love. So I thought, well, I've got, you know, a decade of teaching under my belt. If it goes wrong, I could always go back, go back to it. So I kind of backed myself and, and, and went on a leap of faith and I did it. And it was absolutely the best decision. <laughs> it, it was a pay cut. It was a pay cut, but it was a happiness injection. Yeah, you know? Happiness pay. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Um, and I had a, a fantastic um, few years at the RFL working with um, Anthony Atherton, Dave Elliott, um, Dave Rotherham, um, and, and Paul Medley, and, and under John Roberts. Um, I got to do some fantastic things. I went on academy tours. Um, I went to Australia and France and home test matches. And I, I would, I, I was, I, I was getting paid, but it, 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 that, felt like that a, wasn't. Yeah, yeah I, I was loving what I was doing. And then the opportunity came to join the FA to do this. Now, obviously, I'm not a footballer, and quite obviously, I, I'm not a woman. Um, so it, it wasn't a natural fit. But the opportunity to build something from scratch in professional team sport, that felt like that was a unique miss it and miss out opportunity. Um, and I, I had and still have um, great relationships with people in rugby league. And I, I always feel that you know, leave something on really good terms because mm-hmm. you might need to go back through that door one day. Um, and I'd like to think that the, there was no bridges burned within that that sport. And and I've come into something and that self-doubt kicked in massively again. But I spent the first six months, and still do it now, anything I can find about the history of women's football, magazines about it, documentaries about it, I need to know that. So I didn't know about Dick Curl ladies. I didn't know about Lily Parr. I didn't know about the FA Barn. I didn't know about the Donny Bell story and all that kind of stuff. But I do now because I've invested that time in it. And, and I think whatever you're going to do, first of all, it's got to make you happy. Don't, don't worry too much about the salary. Just be happy doing what you're doing. And then when, when you're happy, throw yourself into it. Make sure you know as much of it about, uh, about it as you can. And then you give yourself a chance to excel. Tony, and that's what I tried to do. You can you give an example of you know you've really thrown yourself into it and found out about the background of the sport. Can you give a concrete example of how that's really helped you and played out? Because some people will go, yeah, yeah, that's great, but you know, has it just just has it just given you confidence, or has it really um, really sort of lived out and helped you be able to do what you do? Um, yeah, some sometimes. There are some real stalwarts of the sport in women's football. And when we say stalwarts, they've got a tremendous tale to tell. Now, what we see now is we see a, a kind of a highly marketed professional sport, growing crowds, huge profile. Um, Alex Scott presenting Football Focus, and, and, and we have a perception of what it is. Well, that's, that's not the case. We've got senior England internationals who at the very start of their top flight career were paying to play. You know, we had, we had Jill Scott, who's going to the Olympics. When she started playing for Everton, 
her tea was whatever she could pick up at the services on the way down from the northeast going down for training in Everton and she was working in I think it was a leisure centre mm. and and before that you know people I work with like Lucy Wellings, Richard Pablo they, they've got tremendous stories very much of struggle yeah. Hope Powell the manager of Brighton you know very decorated um, manager of England as well her stories of struggle of constantly battling and there's a big resonance there with rugby league Mm. Rugby league's a sport that's constantly having a struggle. Yeah, it's of, been through struggle. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and continues to do so, and and arguably always will. Uh, um, so there was a lot of synergy there, and I think if you go into a meeting and there is somebody there who has a story to tell, that meeting will go much more effectively if you've done a bit of research and you know it. You know, um, or you can play your part in it, can't you? I guess and connect yeah. with it. Yeah, and yeah, be interesting. So so. Um, when I first started at the uh, FA, I went into a meeting and there was um, Marianne Spacey in there. And I noticed on the list, Marianne Spacey, MBE. And, and I'm not ashamed to admit, at that time when I saw the list, I, I didn't know a story. So I found out. And I found out she's you know one of the most capped players, Hall of Famer. And therefore, you, the next thing I think is, this is the person I've got to ask lots of questions from. Right, because okay. there's a source of knowledge there and I really want to tap into that knowledge, you know, and, and I made sure I've read how Powell's book because there's loads of people I work with that are mentioned in there and, and it gives me an insight and it gives me a depth of knowledge because if not, I don't know things. I'm not being thorough um, and I'll make, I'll make more foolish mistakes. I know we said mistakes are good. Yeah, but, yeah. But mistakes because you've been a bit tardy and you're not doing your homework. Yeah. That's not good enough. Yeah. You know, um, and, and, and it gives you credibility. So, right. Okay. Yeah. It, it, I, there has been lots of times when I've, and it's been a deliberate act that people have been surprised that I knew something. Yeah. And that's, that, that pleases me because I want to make sure I've done my homework. And you've done it deliberately, haven't you? And I think that you, you, for me, give out a really lovely message there about, you know, it's been purposeful what you've done. You've done it for a reason because it's about credibility. It's about connection. It's about rapport. It's about showing passion and interest and, and all of those things. So, uh, you know, getting that feedback must be lovely that it's actually working. And I, I'm sure people respect that, actually. I think there's, um, there's a, almost like a, a psychological dynamic of this. I yeah. Think. Like many people, I'm watching uh, SAS, who dares wins on <laughs> Channel 4 at the minute. And, and, and a lot of that is kind of commit to what you're doing. You know, don't, don't be hesitant about it. You're either all in or you're not. Um, and if you're all in, you give everything you've got. Um, and that, that, again, is that work ethic. So when people at university doing a sports science degree tell me they want to work in sport, do they want to work in sport or do they like watching it on TV and think, oh, I'd like to be part of that? Or are they putting in all that effort and doing all that work? Because the, the, the coaches and the players in professional sport have invariably made enormous sacrifices in their life to get to that level. If you want to be a practitioner working in sport, you've got to do the same. If you want to be an academy manager or a, a strength and conditioning coach or a psychologist or even a performance analyst or a, a physiotherapist in sport, You've got to be as close to world class as you possibly can get to get to that position. And you're not necessarily going to get great financial reward for it. 
to start with, you know, or to yeah. get you going. Yeah. You've well, not, not always in the end. Not know, even in the end. Yeah, absolutely. There's plenty of Olympians that don't earn great, great salaries. And, true. Yeah, very true. Um, but that boils down to that Alan Watts stuff. Yeah. Do what makes you happy. happy. And, and try to put to the back of your mind the money. We've all got bills. I get that. I get that. We can't just go forget the money. Yeah. But if we try to put happiness and what drives us and what you want, you want to jump out of bed on the morning, don't you? And go, I'm looking forward to what I'm doing today. You raise that question for me, you know, and as you're talking here, you've not used these exact words, but that idea of, again, you know, what is success to you? And I think it comes back to that. What is happiness, isn't it? Success seems like it's happiness and you defining that what it is for you, you know, and I guess is that the kind of the question we're throwing out here, isn't it? You know, for everybody is to work out what it is that really, as you say, jump, gets them to jump out of bed on the morning. Yeah, I, I mean, I am um, trying to not get too morbid about this, but we all end up in the same outcome. You know, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 quite, I quite like, as, as grim as it sounds, that thing about none of us are getting out of this alive. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah. very, it's very true, but it sounds it's useful, morbid. I think, isn't it? <laughs> but but if, if none of us are getting out of this alive and we all end up in this same same thing, when we when we get to the end, you want to look back and go, I had some great experiences. What you don't want to do is you don't want to go, I spent the last 50, 60 years doing something I didn't really enjoy, but it paid the bills. You know, we, we can do better than that. You know, do when I look back over the last few years and, and you know, fingers crossed I'm not anywhere near the end yet, but when I look back over the last few years, I think about, some of the trips I've been on, some of the places I've been, I think about some meetings and go, that's astonishing. You know, um, I I was sat having lunch at St George's Park and chatted to Gareth Southgate, just over lunch, asked what I was doing, introduced himself, I, I knew who he was, even though <laughs> I went um, that That's a memory that, yeah. that I'll take with me. And, and if I've seen him at St George's, I've said hello. And, that, and it's like, that kid who got picked last at primary school. Look where he is now. Knows Gareth Southgate, and it's not like it's not about the name dropping. It's just that because of the work ethic, I'm getting the opportunity to do things that I think are quite exciting. And do you know what? It, it is genuinely the case. If I can get to do stuff like this, anybody can. I, I haven't got any particular talent. I'm just trying my best, and 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 it's getting me somewhere. Sometimes I think it's getting me somewhere beyond what I, I, my talent deserves, but I'll take it, you know. I'm reflecting back on a, uh, a previous podcast guest that I had on, and we talked about the, the notion of impossibility, you know, and sometimes we put barriers and boundaries in our way. And actually what you're just really giving me here is the idea that you know, anything's possible. If I put my work ethic in and I drive it and I follow what's happiness for me, who knows where I might get to? You know, and I'm just think it's a lovely concept and a lovely story that you're sharing here about what what you've managed to achieve quite and, and delivered in a very humble way. And if you think about what you just said, and you said that to your players, parents, and staff in a system, how good would that system be? If everybody there was thinking like that, you know, because because you know, talent development and, and particularly talent ID, it's like panning panning for gold. You know, um, you'll do you'll do a lot of sifting to find what it is you're looking for, and even when you find it, you'll doubt it because 
and you expect you it know. to look like something else. But if everybody has that philosophy of being really open-minded and going, I'm going to give this everything I've got, uh, and I'm not too worried about what's going to happen, but I'm excited about what might come, then you might not be too disappointed. I, I said to all the academy managers that um, I felt the biggest thing they needed to understand was that everybody goes into this type of work thinking, I want to help young people aspire to their dreams. But when 98% plus don't make it, okay. you realize that the majority of the job, the overwhelming majority of the job, is managing the disappointment. Now, that sounds quite a, a grim and, and dark view of it. But actually, if you open their minds and kind of go, well, success can look really different to you. So if a player goes and has a tremendous experience in an academy system, doesn't make the first team, but is at the highest level they possibly can and follows a vocation that they wanted to do, they get to do a great job that they love. They had a great experience at the club and they still play football and really enjoy it at the highest level possible. Yeah. They've used the sport as a vehicle. good lives. And they've, they've used the sport as a vehicle, haven't they, I guess, or the opportunity <laughs> as a vehicle to, to maximise their skills and their opportunities and their potential. It, it, it breaks me when we read so many things about broken players who feel in despair when they've come to their end of the journey and it's, it, it, it's not worked out. I think the journey wasn't managed very well. Yeah. You know, um, and, and, and that isn't something that you do just at the end of their registration. It's something that you, you, you instill all that time. I had a dream of playing 500 Super League games and being an international player. Yeah. And even now, when I go and play Vets football on a Monday night and a Thursday night, I still want to play for Blackpool because I'm still a little boy. I'm just a 44-year-old little boy. Um, and that hasn't happened and it's not going to happen. Well, I'm still having a great time and I'm still enjoying what I do. So, and you're happy coming back to that thing here. <laughs> yeah, but be, be open about how your story ends, you know, write your own chapters kind of thing, because it can be a brilliant story, but it doesn't have to end how you particularly thought it might. Do you have a sense of, you know, moving us on, do you have a sense of where your story would, you would like it to go in the next number of years? You know, if you're looking back, you know, what's the trace you would like to leave in addition to what you've already left? I think I think there's a cliche here um, and, and it is going to sound terribly cliched. I understand this. But I, in, in five years time and ten years time, I want to be happy. Yeah. So that's the first thing. I want to be happy doing what I'm doing. If that means I'm back as a teacher, if that means I work with England national teams and I'm going to tournaments, if it means I work in a completely different sport, or if it means I go back to rugby, I'm not overly fussed. It, it, I've even discussed what it might look like if I didn't work in talent development. Maybe I worked in a different aspect of the same sport. Yeah. And it's, it's, I think I'd still have the same principles. Remember I said about rules aren't as important as principles. Yeah. Whatever I was doing, I'd want to make sure I knew as much about it as I possibly could, so I'd do my own work. But before all of that, I'd have to be happy doing what I'm doing. As soon as you're not happy, then it's time you, you, you've got to look. 
and you've got to try and find your next your next step. Um, so I, I, I don't like doing the same thing for too long. I like change because I think change is positive. It keeps things fresh. That doesn't necessarily mean um, changing sports or changing employers, yeah. but it might do. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, but that's what I've just said about being open-minded about open-minded, yeah. the end point. The principles are I've got to be enthused and I've got to be happy. And if I am, then then actually whoever is employing me gets the best out of me. I, I, I sometimes wonder why employers don't regularly review the staff that they have and assess the skill sets that they bring and ask them, what would you like to do? Because if you get everybody using their skill sets and you get as many people as you possibly can happy, that's when your your organisation will start to fly. Why don't we do that, Tony? We, we don't ask them. We, we don't ask them. <laughs> what we do is we have a load of job descriptions and we have a hierarchical chart and we write the job description before the person comes in. Uh, what I think we need to do is we need to identify the role, look for the type of person that we want, and then once we know a bit more about that person, amend the role yeah. so that it's really focusing on what they can do. Mm. Because I, 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 I've done disc profiling, and, and I think those who work me will know this. I'm very good at ideas. I'm not so good at the detail in the ideas. I can get a bit bored with that. So get the detail people to work with me, and I'll do the creative yeah, stuff. And I'll do the, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it, it's kind of, we, we, we do it an awful lot where when we're trying to build something, if we were building a house, we try and get the plumber to do all the electrics. Well, actually, let's get the right people with the right skill set doing the right roles um, and ask them what makes them happy, what makes them excited. Because if you work in an organisation where, and you see this in a lot of small businesses, there's a buzz about the environment. And, and, and conversely, when you go in an environment and it's all kind of quiet and a bit, a bit drab and people yeah, look at the clock, yeah. I, I always notice it, it's a bad sign when there's a massive clock in an office. Because generally, it's kind of like they're all looking at watching it. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you know, I, 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 I subscribe massively to the thing about unlimited leave. Yeah. Um, work when you want. I'd much rather have a productive twenty-five hours from somebody than forty hours a week where they're kind of chewing the pen and looking out the window. You know, the, the, I think the and again the psychological principles behind that, whereby reduce the rules to let people and, fly yeah <laughs> I've, I've listened to some fascinating stuff from um james timpson yeah about that keep the rules really simple yeah and his rules are like kind of um turn up on time be presentable and, and uh, put the money in the till in it <laughs> yeah put the money in the till that's it and and other than that you can do what you want yeah and they and they fly don't they and they do great so the, 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 there's that kind of um social um kind of facilitation whereby people will follow a, a general norm yeah but if they, there's rules they feel constrained let, 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 let them you know if somebody wants to go home at two o'clock and i give it do it you know if if somebody's not available i'll get hold of them later mm-hmm. what i don't want is to think oh well, i must be able to get hold of them because it's work hours we've all got lives and 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 outside of everybody's job role there's something far more important happening whether that's their children, 
looking after the elders in their family, whether it's something to do with their home, whether it's how they feel, their mental health, whatever it is, everybody is dealing with something that's far more important than work. And we've got to allow them to do that. And, and that's where you get happy people. Happy people work well. Um, constrained people never do. And you make a lovely connection for me there between that kind of home situation and work situation and actually they're interlinked aren't they you know in some ways you've got a they can't the same person goes to t both places so understanding what's going on in both impacts on one another and i think you make a really valid point there because ultimately we're trying to get the best out of the individual in whatever environment so loads of great kind of tips and insights and philosophies there and i'm smiling tony because they all played really true to me and you know what i'm trying to do with the bringing out of the sports stories podcast the stories people are telling is about you know, really freeing people up to go out there and maximize their, you know, maximize their happiness, actually, really drive that, because I know it's an easy throwaway comment. But I think that actually is such a key principle to drive us forward, what it means to you and what it means to me might be different, mightn't it, but it can really drive us forward. Eh? Um, me, 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 mental health and, and, and those yeah. things have, have become a, a little bit of a tick box exercise. Mm. But what does it actually mean? Um, you know, so putting people through compulsory courses where, you know, you've passed by attendance, that feels very tick box to me. But for instance, one of the things I do, I've, I've got this, this notepad in here. And, and one of the things in my notepad is um, I write down people's names and I will add bullet points of things that I find out about them. It right. might be who they support. It might be, I found out that they've got really? two children and I can't remember everything. When I'm speaking to them, I'll have a quick glance because if I know they've got two children, That's I might say, how are the kids? And, and, and people might think that that's a bit contrived. It's not. I write it down because I, I don't forget it. But I do care about the stuff away from um, work for, for, for them people because that's what makes them who they are. Your job description doesn't make you who you are. It's everything that's around you and, and around your life. Um, and... And that ma that matters. And if, if somebody can go, oh, not that's not so good at the moment, but you know, working on it, and Brilliant. we're all people, and, and the the interactions we have as people again determines happiness. Yeah. I think we're we're going down to this central point, isn't it? That yeah. if you do the things that make you happy, then that's where the magic kind of happens. Yeah, and I, and I think it's about what you what what you've made me also reflect on here again is you know that key bit about what makes you happy, but also what's your role in what makes other people happy, you know, because you're you're interacting with other people in the jobs that you do, aren't you? You know, so what makes you happy is one thing, but actually just checking in and showing an interest, and I love that one that you know people they don't know they don't care what you know until they know that you care. You know, and that little, yeah. your little black book really plays to me for that. You know, I, I'm showing that I'm interested and I care about them as a person. And then that'll really help them drive forward as a, as a professional in whatever role they do. It's just brilliant. It's a great tip, I think, for many people, many of our listeners to really think about, you know, how do we capture that? Because I think there's something about, you know, we can only keep so many people's names and content in our head at any one time. So actually having the little black book expands that, doesn't it? It's like our external hard drive. Well, one of the things that um, I know is a, a frailty and a weakness is sometimes um, I have problems whereby I wear my feelings on my face. So <laughs> it, it has been a problem in a couple of roles whereby if I'm not happy in a meeting, you can tell. I haven't said anything, but you can tell. And, and you know, sometimes that upsets people or sometimes that offends and this, that and the other. 
Um, but on, on the flip side, if you can't tell, I worry that I, am I a bit of a corporate face? Mm. Am I am I acting or am I being me? Um, and, and I kind of have a, an internal challenge with that philosophy. And it, if I'm honest, I'd much rather people no. know, that, know that that's how I feel and that's who I am. And they're absolutely free to disagree with it. And, and you know, I, I want to know more so that I don't upset you and I don't mm. offend you. Mm. But I think being open and honest is a, is a real key to, to working with people. You don't want to wonder what they think. Yeah. It's much better if they tell you. And, if, and that you feel comfortable to say, I didn't like what, what you said there. Yeah. I didn't like yeah. how you made me feel. Yeah. And then that's where learning happens. Yeah, we can do something with that then, can't we? <laughs> exactly. But if we have this kind of corporate face of we nod and we smile because we do that to everybody, that 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 almost feels kind of like um, have a nice day at McDonald's type yeah, thing. Yeah. Well, Tony, as a as a people developer, as a, a talent identifier, as a, a coach, as a PE teacher, you know, you're always been interested in helping people move on, develop, and improving what they do. Not only others, but also yourself. Uh, so let me just fire a few quick fire questions at you, just to bring us to a close here, to really add a little bit more additional value to the listeners and I'm just wanting to pull out you know are there any books or resources which you've have been really your go-to places that really helped you or really influenced your thinking which you might advise some of the listeners to go to uh, a couple of things the, the Alan Watts stuff yeah um, I, I really like that um, I, I really like a book called The Shack yeah uh, it's a novel and the, the, the bit I like the most is um, in there, and I, I, no spoilers, um, trying to understand what forgiveness means. And okay. I misunderstood what forgiveness was for years and years, and now I understand it a bit more. I think um, that helps. Um, and I do like autobiographies, and yeah. I used to fall in the trap of always sports ones. Yeah. But autobiographies are really reflections on learning. And a story, and, it, and that's where you know, when we were talking about experience, yeah. Um, thrive on when successful people got stuff wrong, brilliant, yeah, that'll help you, yeah. And an autobiography out of sport, who, whose would you go to? Oh, wow, that, that, ooh, that's a tough one. Uh, an autobiography out of sport that I really loved. Um, do you know what? I'm going to say. Lee Crooks. Mm -hmm. um, Lee Crooks was a hero of mine as a Castleford fan. Yeah. Um, and he made every single mistake going and it, it, it shaped him and he learned and he developed and he didn't always get the learning right but I think it's a great lesson in, in honesty. Mm -hmm. I think any, any autobiography where there's some real self-reflection I think that's really powerful. So my, my throwback to you then is two last questions here. In terms of self-reflection, what advice would you give to yourself now as a, if you were a teenager, you know, a teenager version of yourself? What tips or guidance in a nutshell would you give to yourself to help you on the way again? I think um, if I was able to um, speak to a younger version of myself, I 
I don't think I would have um, done too much different. But what I would have said is, don't worry. Yeah. I've spent an awful lot of my time worrying about what would happen. Um, and as a result, I spent too much time looking at things of, as having an end point. Okay. And it doesn't have an end point. It, it, again, it's a bit of a cliche that yeah. life's a, a, a journey, not a destination. But what you're doing at that moment in time, that's part of the story. Brilliant. So you've got to be enjoying that bit now. Don't put everything into, oh, well, I want to get to this particular point. Because you might get there and you might not like it. Yeah, might not be what you thought it was. Or, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so enjoy yourself along the way. And I think um, that is the... We've twin boys, they're four years old. Um, and the best advice that I want to give to them is safely and without you know, risking others, enjoy yourself, whatever that brings. If that's backpacking, if that's um, doing whatever career, you know, uh, right now, Oscar wants to be a bin man and um, Isaac would like to be a fireman. And if they, if those are the careers that they do, if that's what they chose, I'm made up because if that's what makes them happy, I do not care what they become. I just want them to be, be happy, happy doing it. Yeah. Love it. Some real key principles there again. We're coming back to that thing about happiness and principles. You know, what are the key principles for you and, and for the kids and stuff? It's just amazing. And you, you've got to be, you've got to be, unhappy at times to learn what happiness means you know yeah. um 2010 and, and and that period was a very dark period in my life and and the mental health challenges i had and um i don't think i understood what it was i wanted until i didn't have what i needed yeah Does that makes sense yeah so um a, a, again when you're unhappy use it Positively, it's, nearly. It, it, yeah, it's something that's going to really help you. Mm. It'll help you make your decisions moving forward. Wow. That's really positive. Uh, that's a really powerful message, that, isn't it? You know, the times when so many of us hit those rocky times or that rocky road or that difficult stuff and see that as, um, you know, how we can actually, uh, don't get me wrong here, but kind of nearly embrace it and see it for what it can bring you, you know, in terms of giving you that perspective. It's, it's a I think I'm happier now than at any point I've yeah. been in my life. Um, but if you'd have asked me that at Christmas 2010, and I, I, I couldn't even see next week, if I'm honest. So, um, yeah, it, it, it's kind of don't don't worry too much about the dark times because you'll just learn loads that will help you get get to the good times. Without without opening that up again, though. Tony, how how did you navigate through that? Because so many of us do get a dark time and a, a hard place, you know. And yes, we're talking about it, seeing it as positive. And it's easy, isn't it, when you look back on these sort of signs. But, but how how did you navigate through that to pull yourself out the other side of those um, areas? The key, the key bit was was putting my hand up and going, "I need some help." And, right. And Brilliant. um and and. and for arguably a period of about four or five years, I didn't do that and it just got worse and worse and worse. It was only when I hit the bottom um, and, and, and was suicidal that, you know, 
things happened that the press buttons that meant the help came. Right. So I had to hit the bottom before that help came. But when it did come, um, not being ashamed of it. So I, I went on medication. I was having counseling and therapy. The hardest thing was taking time out. I remember I was signed off for six months. And I, I remember saying, so that's it. I'm just sat at home for six months. That's like a six months prison sentence. Wow. And actually, over a period of time, I learned about me. And yeah. I learned what was it that I liked to do. And then, you know, four years later, I had a chance to move jobs into something that I really wanted to do. So that that decision was much easier because I had that time to kind of understand me. You know, if you're spending that many... I, I genuinely think that very often issues of mental health are caused, and I'm not, I'm not over-summating here, are caused by people trying to be something for another reason. Mm -hmm. So they're doing something for that person or for that environment or to create that image or whatever it is. But actually, if you can find yourself some space to be isolated and go, right, this is me. What, what am I and what makes me happy and what do I want to be? And then be that. So you actually need that time of isolation. You yeah. need that that that, that space, nearly, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I I, I did that, and and mm. as as almost perverse it is, if I had my time again, there is not a chance on earth that I would want to circumnavigate the very darkest point in my life, because that was when the best learnings came, and I very nearly didn't make it through, because I nearly made choices that would have ended the story there and then, and that would have been horrific. Mm. For everybody around me but the, the the fact fact was that didn't happen a bit more luck than you know decision making but um that 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 period of my life put into perspective what actually matters and what doesn't and what's just noise you know so yeah. as, as hard as it is for people who are struggling and, and i do work with um, mental health projects and i do workshops and this yeah. that, and the other and if you see me social media there's a lot of emphasis on mental health yeah. um as as hard as it is try your very best to embrace it because it's not going to last forever yeah things will change and and the biggest destiny of that change will be you your decisions and what you want wow thanks for sharing that that's that's amazing stuff you know and and, and really pertinent and relevant for many people you know because i think it's a it's a subject area that's often not talked about isn't it and that's why we're talking about it and i think that's yeah. testament to it so you know thank you for for sharing your story and your vulnerability and it, you know it, it it warms my heart to hear that and actually here's the story that you've come through and how you've managed to navigate it and use it and and also to see the outcome of that in some ways of you doing the work you're doing now but also in a really happier place you know, saying that I'm actually probably in the happiest times of my life at the moment, you know, but that's, that's true construction, isn't it? You've worked hard at that. So, you know, I really appreciate you, you sharing the story there. Um, my last question, as I said, I had two, and this is my last one. You've shared your story, Tony. You, you're a learner. You've taken stuff out of so many other people's stories. Is there anybody else's sports story you would be keen to hear from, or we should try and get on as a guest here, or our listeners might get a lot from, you know, Whose sports story could we go to from here, do you think? Um, I think the, the really interesting ones for me, we, we, we get an awful 
lot of stories from people who've succeeded. <laughs> and um, I think the real fascinating stuff is from those that didn't. So the, uh, I, I've listened to the High Performance Podcast um, uh, and, I, and I, I've listened to things like that. And where I get a fantastic story is people where it, it went wrong yeah. And then off the back of it going wrong, it went right. Because if you remember when I was said about the 98% yeah. in, in, in sporting pathways, it, it doesn't go well. But in that 98%, some amazing stories happen. Yeah. So um, somebody I'm going to recommend is uh, Kerry Bennett, right. Black Lieutenant Kerry Bennett from the RAF. And... Um, Kerry has an incredible story of being uh, a mum, but a mum who's a flight lieutenant in the RAF and is on a programme to become an astronaut. And that belief that um, a young woman who faces all of the kind of gender imbalances that society, society brings Brings. uh, can combine two of the most impossible roles and that's an astronaut and a parent amazing and they're equally difficult yeah um and kerry bennett does that so that that's going to be my recommendation wow food for thought there hey just just in what you've said there gets you thinking already about her story and the the viewpoints and the opportunities and the just the thought-provoking challenges that that presents that her story um tony look thanks for your very thoughtful humble honest open account of your journey i I know we could carry on forever here because we just could go we we follow the flow and the energy and you've got so many lovely stories and tales and but also what i really pick up is your your real deep intent to to want to help and to be honest you know and i know that that's one of your kind of key principles that's come through let's just put it out there and you know if people don't like it they don't like it but if they do we can work with it you know and I just really love that so thank you ever so much for sharing a good part of your story and I only hope that it carries on in the way it's it's gone so far if people would like to find out more how, how could they be in contact with you to find out either what you're doing personally or also some of the work that you're doing with the the women's academy system Probably the easiest way um, is via social media um, at Tony Fretwell on Twitter. Um, okay. I keep my DMs open uh, for that very reason. Um, sometimes that's to my cost, but you know that's the risk <laughs> you take. Um, but yeah, they, they can message me freely there, or they can get in touch with me at the FA. That's no problem at all. So Tony at thefa.com. Happy to uh, receive emails. Brilliant. as long as they're nice as long as they're nice well they, <laughs> they will be or constructive because <laughs> oh yeah that nice doesn't mean stay bringing good news yeah. you can deliver bad news nicely nicely well look thanks again tony it's been a real pleasure uh i, I want us just to hook up again in a year 18 months time and find out what the the next episode or the next story of the tony fretwell journey is you know it's been amazing what you've done and uh, you know i recall this i think with a number of other people over the past few days that people's journeys are not just from a to b they're not very straight they go all over and i think you really epitomize that idea that things don't happen linear they're often messy and muddled hip bumps on the way but actually it's lovely to see 
your happiness in what you've done and and it really plays to my philosophy as well actually and I think if we can all help each other and strive for that whatever makes us happy then it's a job worth doing so thanks for sharing that and it's been a real pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much for asking me I, I, honoured and delighted to be asked to do this um, though I, I, I will admit I, I the inner me thinks it's bonkers anybody <laughs> wants to hear my story um you know but if, if people get something from it that's great and you know if they let me know and that will help me learn and, and and take more things from it so thank you very much dev absolute pleasure most people think it's bonkers but i think that's why we're doing it because we've all got a story to tell and you clearly have so uh, let's w watch this space and uh, any feedback as i say for any of our podcasts is absolutely um applauded and welcomed because we're we're here to try and help the listeners and you've definitely done that today so good stuff thanks tony my pleasure so there we have it episode 49 the second to last episode in series five of the sports stories podcast and what an episode it was tony in his usual style his great storytelling his passion and most of all his openness really shared a great insight into his career to date he showed some of the real highs he showed some deep deep lows and really open himself up to what his journey has been through sport. Yet actually everything that he's done, he's really valued, he's taken the learning from it and seen it as a positive in his story so far. And I think that's a really key message for me in terms of actually what you take from your story is down to you. And Tony really has maximized everything from, as I say, those low times right through to the high ones. The things that really stood out for me though is actually seeing every opportunity as a learning opportunity absolutely pushing his work ethics the most and where he really drove from a really young early age as a player right through to finding his first job in sport development putting his cv out to everybody just to make sure he got what he wanted was such a great starting place for him his work ethic as i said was absolutely phenomenal he really learned about the places that he worked really fully understood them and recognized that actually leaving no stone unturned was really important to really maximize the opportunities that he had and actually followed the jobs and the, the careers and the opportunities rather than the money or the profile and actually recognized that if he put in the right work early on that the rewards and the recognition would follow. And I really like those, those principles because I think they're key principles for any, any aspiring individual wanting to find a way through their career and in life. And lastly, one of the things that really dropped out for me was the idea of happiness. Tony really flipped to recognizing that happiness was a key principle. And I use the word principle really purposefully because he mentioned there around rules were getting in his way and principles in work and in life were really key for him. And he was driving towards the principle of whatever made him happy. And I think later on in his life, in the last five to 10 years or so, he's really deepened his understanding of what happiness is for him. And I recall his words saying, you know, he's in the happiest place that he could possibly be now with his young family um, and doing some great work, but also recognizing that change might come ahead. And I think, again, great principles for us driving forward in life and actually wanting to leave a really strong trace or a really great legacy in the work that we do. Really going out and creating that story was something that was great and key from the messages today. So in order for me to help you do that, I just want to pose a number of questions. I usually only pose two or three, but I'm gonna take the liberty of posing five because Tony really made me think and posed a number of great questions himself, which I want to recall. So the first question, what efforts do you take or could you take to make yourself stand out from the crowd? 
Tony really wanted to stand out and he went over and above through his work ethic. What are you doing to stand out from the crowd? Secondly, what are you a hundred cap international at? What would you like to be a hundred cap international at? Tony used the idea that he's a hundred cap international at the work that he does, which really helped him work in environments with people that were um, maybe uh, higher profile or in his eyes had a greater reputation or greater skill set. But what he became really good at is what he knew, which was what he called his 100 cap international. So what are you really, really great at or want to be great at and known for? Thirdly, what would you do if there was no such thing as money? How would you fill your time? This is based on the work of Alan Watts, which he did a lot of reading around. And what makes you happy was a real key principle and often taking out the key parts of money actually really helps you recognize what it is that makes you happy, gives you a spring and wants you to jump out of bed in the morning. So question four, if none of us are getting out of this alive, which is a slightly morbid thought, what are the great experiences you would like to have? What do you need to do to make them happen if you have that power and that choice? This is a real great opportunity to create that story going forward and make those great experiences. And Tony talked a lot about that during his dark times and how he came out of them is going ahead and creating some great experiences to share. And he's continuing to use that as a real driving force. And my last question, who is your role model and how do they help you learn and develop? Tony once again mentioned a number of people that have been real key influencers, people that he really resonated with or in terms of what they stood for. He really used them as key role models or people to look at in terms of to learn from. And I just wonder who those are for you or who might they be? Okay, so there's five really big questions, great questions. Some of them might work for you better than others, but I want to keep questioning you, keep making you think a little bit about what can you drive going forward? What are the questions you need to ask yourselves? How might you really make the best of what you've got ahead of you? What tools, what resources do you need to call on? And that's where it leads me to the other sports stories, resources that we have available. There's loads of great things on the website coming forward. The program of maximizing your coaching and leadership impact is available, which provides you with further podcasts, but many tools and techniques and resources and reference points and workbooks, which will really help you underpin the work that you need to do and the work that you are currently doing. So please take a look at the, the website uh, and look at the program. Furthermore, there is the coaching and mentoring offer. I have a pool of great support people for you. Tony once again talked about people that were around him that were real sort of advocates uh, and real sort of thought leaders and people that helped him on his journey and therefore questioned them to the nth degree to find out loads more about them in order to help him develop and become the best that he can be. So the coaching and mentoring offer is out there, a group of really respected and credible and very experienced people, both in the business, but also crucially in the principles of high performance sport and sport development. So uh, have a look there or drop me a line if you're interested in working with any of those coaches or mentors. And as always, uh, it just leads me on to saying, please keep in contact. Let me know how you're getting on the success stories. Do drive us forward. We've had some great feedback from, from the last show last week with Dan Newton in terms of things that really resonated with other leaders in terms of their leadership journey. Um, so please let us know about what lands for you with Tony's story and what you've taken from it and moved forward with your story and your journey. Uh, and lastly, keep in contact via the social media channels uh, where you can find out what's coming next. Uh, we've got our 50th episode coming up next week. 
where we bring a little bit of Brazilian football to the UK. It's going to be a fabulous uh, podcast episode, which I'm sure you'll take loads from it. A very, very thoughtful individual who's gone on such a learning journey and has got some real highs and lows, and I'm sure be once again wearing his heart on his sleeve. So uh, join me next week for our 50th episode of the Sports Stories podcast. And thanks once again for joining me today for today's episode with uh, with Tony. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you've taken at least one or two little gems to help you on your way. And as always, um, it's been a pleasure to have you with me. So uh, take care, have a good week, and I look forward to having you with me, Dave Levine, again for episode 50 of the Sports Stories podcast next week. And I'll see you again soon.